This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-800-941-2358 to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma or relapse, for young adults, for adults 50-plus, for LGBTQ patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas, a confidential program for first responders and military, and a faith-based program. Recovery Centers of America accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-800-941-2358. 800-941-2358. You know what I want. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today a very special guest, really up my alley because we're going to get into the minutia of NBA defense and the Raptors defense, and I quite literally cannot think of anybody better to do so than Too Much Hoops Brad. You can find his Twitter, two underscore much underscore hoops, and you'll see it there, and that links to his YouTube page, Too Much Hoops, which is one of the best on YouTube at breaking down defense and oftentimes in relation to the Raptors. Brad, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you, Samson? Uh, doing good. I won't repeat what we had prior to the podcast because it's too doom and gloom, but <laughs> we're here to talk defense and I'm defending my feelings currently. Uh, what's, uh, What's the rest of the day look like for you? Are you excited to, uh, to get out of here, or uh, are you excited to talk defense? I'm excited to talk defense, and I'm excited to get out of here. My, my okay. wife and I are playing Gloomhaven the rest of the day. So Gloomhaven? What's, yeah, what's Gloomhaven? It's a board game. It's like a, a board game where that's sort of like a, a Dungeons & Dragons campaign where like your party like expands and evolves over time, and, and the world sort of grows as you as you complete your missions and stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I love Dungeons yeah, and Dragons. Yeah, it's really cool. I tried to do a, an online campaign with friends, uh, I don't know, like almost a year ago, probably like 11 months ago. It fell apart though. FaceTime is tough <laughs> to do Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, it's over, tough. But I do love the game though. But uh, anyway. Yeah, it's just okay. me and my wife, so we don't have to rely on anybody else. Yeah. It's uh, very efficient in that way, an efficiency of movement, which I think brings us to the Raptors probably. So just we're going to set the ground rules for this. We're talking about the Raptors defense. You know the Raptors defense, so we're going to appeal to you. What do you see as the central tenets of the Raptors defense? 
what, if anything, would you like to see changed? All right. So the, the central tenets of the Raptors defense are, I guess I would describe them as pressure and help. Uh, the Raptors love to pressure guys at, at the point of attack, at the perimeter. Um, and then, uh, especially against superstars, they like to load up to those guys and force other players on the team to beat them. And, and as a result of that, what often happens is, say you're guarding a Jason Tatum or something, you don't want, to, well, you don't want him to get a three off, so you're right up in his jersey, and that makes it easy for him to blow by you, which of course necessitates help to rotate over and prevent him from getting a layup. And now the guy who rotated, his man is open, so the guy who was guarding Tatum has to rotate out or, or somebody else has to rotate out. Um, so it's sort of a, a really, uh, it's, it's designed to load up to superstars, pressure them, and then help from all over and get into rotation. And the Raptors, over the last couple seasons, have been one of the biggest rotation-heavy teams out of anybody in the league, um, which is probably why they are starting to break down <laughs> this season compared to, compared to previous ones. Do you think there's a, a large correlation between the lack of practice this year and rotation-heavy defenses perhaps struggling? I, I do think that the lack of practice uh, this year is, is difficult for defenses in general. I think one of the ways that a defense, especially a complex defense, becomes successful is you have all five guys on the same page about like where the next guy needs to be rotating from and who needs to be rotating to his guy. It's, it's so complex and there's so many decisions. And if somebody is not on the same page as everybody else, either because they're slow at reading the situation or slow at reacting or they're not that bright or they uh, just don't have enough experience with the system, what happens is you just get a little, you end up half a second late on a rotation, which in itself isn't a big deal necessarily. You know, you might, you might get dunked on, but usually it doesn't matter. Like if you're half a second late on a rotation, but then if that starts to happen again on the same possession and happens a few more times, all of a sudden you're way behind on the rotations and your defense just gets broken. And, uh, and I think that is essentially what's been happening to the Raptors this season. So a situation that comes up a lot, I think, is guys like Pascal Siakam and Kyle Lowry, to my eye, they stunt a lot. And that puts the guy behind them in a tough position because they don't know whether to close out to their guy normally or to cover the guy that one of Lowry or Siakam is about to leave because they're stunting. And that happens quite often. And it's that interchangeability, just knowing what's going on with your teammate, what your teammate's going to do, their proclivity to do that type of stuff. And then you look at something that isn't like, you don't have to rely on somebody to overhelp, but you look at how they lost the Atlanta Hawks and how Norm had the weak side zone and Herder cuts against it. Norm drops out of it. And I believe it was, I think it was Stanley Johnson. Yes, I believe you're right. Yeah, Stanley Johnson. He, he goes out beyond the, to contest the shot, but it looked like Norm should have maintained the weak side zone because Ananobi and Lowry were both in the paint. Lowry had come from the baseline to stop the drive. And it's just like, 
Norm not trusting those guys, Norm dropping out of the zone to come help and trail the guy cutting in and leaving the weak side wide open. It's stuff like that where you wonder, what is it that you think changed with this team that the interchangeability, their sense for where, their proprioception, I guess, of where each other are and their sensibilities, what do you think is the biggest difference this year as opposed to last year? I think the bigger difference this year, I think one of the big uh, values of big men uh, that, that uh, is a little bit underrated is the communication on the back line of the defense. And I think that's something that Gasol and, and to a lesser degree, Ibaka, but still Ibaka, especially compared to like Boucher and Baines, um, were both very good at sort of reading things as they're happening. Uh, and I think like making decisions behind the scenes of this is a real threat, this is not a real threat, and, and calling it out to guys and them having like complete trust in him uh, or in, in, in him and Serge because they have that experience together and, and they know how good they are. Um, so I think that communication on the back line of the defense uh, uh, really has changed this year. And I think part of it too is that the Raptors were sort of a, they sort of have a small margin for error sometimes um like Van Vliet and Lowry are both very very good they're also both very very small <laughs> and 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 the raptor that raptors have been okay with that because their defense has been good enough and the team's rebounding has been good enough that it's not a huge deal to play two guys who are 6 feet and 5 foot whatever uh on the floor at the same time but you know this season you take some of the the pieces like Gasol and Ibaka out of the equation and and now the rebounding is not so good and having those tiny little guards uh hurts a little bit more than maybe it would have if if uh if things were a little bit better either with rim protection or with uh rebounding as well um so I think that's part of it and then the other the other part of it is um I think Lowry has lost a bit of a step defensively uh, in terms of containment on the ball. Um, so that's, I mean, that's part of it. it. It's not that big of a deal, I don't think, compared to last season. But, uh, but it's not nothing either. And then, uh, and then yeah, just, just the personnel shift, I think, from, from Gasol and Ibaka is, is the biggest thing. Do you see any ramifications just addressing the five-foot-whatever Van Vliet and the maybe six-foot Kyle Lowry as far as, like, when you're looking at skip passes and long passes made over the defense, a guy like Jason Tatum, a guy like Robert Covington, great nail defenders because of their length. And oftentimes guys like Van Vliet and Lowry will be in that position too. Do you think that that hurts as well rather than the rebounding and like a little bit of point of attack defense? A little bit. I, but I think, I also think to the, um, to some degree, uh, Van Vliet in particular mitigates that by just being like insanely strong, really quick. He makes good reads and, and he also really makes himself big on those, like say you're going to try like a cross court one hand pass. He really will get his arms up and get off the floor too, if he needs to, to, to try and cut that off. Um, but, but I mean, the difference between a five foot 11 guy and a six foot six guy, if they both put in that same amount of effort, it's, it's huge, obviously. 
Like I, I, that was something I was thinking. I was watching the Sixers the other day, and I was like, boy, it sure is nice to have like Danny Green as the second smallest guy on the court or something, because it just is that that extra bit of length just takes away uh, an extra lane here and there. Yeah, there's uh, the Sixers for a little while have had that claustrophobic aspect to their defense. They're not necessarily super impressive outside of Embiid and Simmons at times, but with so many big bodies on the court, there's like this aspect of being squeezed that I think that second round series that the Raptors had, they they felt quite large. It's guys like Tobias Harris is playing as, and Jimmy Butler are playing as your nominal two and three. Those guys are massive. And JJ Redick is hidden on the weak side of the floor and, you know, Danny Green is calling for post-ups and he's like, oh, God, you know. And uh, But, yeah, it's it makes you claustrophobic and it's tough for guys who – I think there's a reason why Kawhi Leonard was so successful in that series relative to his teammates is because he was comfortable shooting in the small spaces. But a lot of the Raptors, as far as jump shots, at that point in their careers, were not comfortable shooting in the small spaces. They liked the open jump shots, the release valve jump shots, and so – yeah, that's that's a great point. Size can just can really massage some of the other problems on defense, and the Raptors, in a lot of places, do not have a ton of size. But okay, so one thing that I think a lot of people have been focusing on is how role players are shooting against the Raptors. It used to be that they shot very poorly. Now it seems like they're shooting much higher than usual. There's a little bit of irregularity, I think, in the pull-up numbers, but as far as guys getting comfortable with that escape dribble, putting the ball on the floor, finding the next guy against this swarming Raptors defense. What do you make of that? I think part of it is a, is a nice adjustment by, well, I'll start at the other end. I think part of it is natural variability to some degree. Like I think, uh, I think last season, I, I heard a stat that last season teams shot open, wide open threes the worst against the Raptors and this season uh, the Raptors opponents are among the best in shooting wide open threes. And, and part of that is who's getting the shots. Uh, Part of that is, is, uh, is how comfortable they are shooting them. Um, But also part, part of that is randomness. I think three point shooting has a lot of, a lot of variability that is, especially if you're not looking at full seasons is, is uh, can, can skew things a little bit. But then the other part of it is is nice adjustments by opposing coaches who I think tell their role players like Tatum or whoever is going to get loaded up on tonight. You know, Grant Williams, you have the green light. If you shoot eight threes, I'm not going to be mad at you. (laughs) Um, So sort of getting them prepared for that. And also like even more than the, the comfort of it, I think if you know the Raptors are going to get into rotation against you, you can sort of just keep moving the ball until they get into rotation and start waiting for those mistakes. And once the, once the good shot comes, once the open corner three comes, just let it fly. Because uh, a lot of where the Raptors make their hay is you hesitate on that corner three and then that's one second for the defense to just reset and, and, and center itself a little bit more. Um, and then you're back to starting from scratch. Uh, and, and I think, I think some opposing teams have kind of figured that out. And, um, and, and another part of it is just like, 
if if Tatum is going to take 10 less shots against the Raptors than he usually takes, or I keep saying Tatum, but you know, whatever superstar X keeps, uh, keeps shooting 10 less shots against the Raptors than they usually shoot. Those shots are going to somebody else and, and guys are in the NBA cause they can hit threes <laughs> and, and they're going to hit threes. So, so uh, part of it is just like the Raptors denying stars, their usual points and, and those going to somebody else. Yeah, something I noticed last year was that it is it is putting pressure on role players to take loads that are more you would see with, you know, pseudo all-stars and then trying to get them uncomfortable in that. And I think Blake, Blake Murphy for listeners, talked about scheme preparedness and how that might factor into playing the Raptors. And I think you hit on it completely right there. Uh, just one quibble. Fly-by closeouts or under-control closeouts? What do you think? Because there's a lot of variation in the Raptors roster as far as that goes. It depends. I, so I don't, I don't love a fly-by that sends a guy like into the second row. <laughs> That's not the kind of fly-bys I'm looking at. Uh, but I have to say there are some guys, like I see Siakam do this sometimes. Um, for some reason, I have Utah in my head doing this. And OG does this a lot where you'll sort of, it, it's not quite a flyby because you jump quite a bit in front of the three point line and you land just past the three point line. So you're sort of on the guy's back hip more when you land, you're not jumping like four feet past him. Um, and, and, and those I don't mind because if you're able to land and, and just use that to push off and, and get back into the play, um, I, I think you can still, uh, you can still do well, but, um, in general, I think the Raptors could stand to be less aggressive with their closeouts overall. Um, I think probably the biggest def, uh, offender is, uh, is Chris Boucher. Um, but he's not the only one. <laughs> the, uh, they're innovators, the contest and lock and trail. The lock and trail typically for like pin down defense, but the Raptors yeah. have innovated so that they do it on a closeout. And yeah, that is, it's also personnel dependent. I think when I just think about like the, where you saw the most disparity was probably the Suns, where Devin Booker and Chris Paul, if you look at how Siakam closed out, it is under control, chopping feet and trying to direct them away from the middle of the floor. Or if he has a helper, at the nail, somebody really close, he feels, okay, we can go to the middle of the floor, something like that. But against Jay Crowder, like lift off, like a rocket taking off and uh, the jump and lock and trail is, I haven't paid that much attention to it this year as far as who are they jumping at, who aren't they? Because typically I think it falls under role player, you jump and try and make them put the ball down because you want role players to put the ball down. Look at the Toronto Raptors, what happens when the role players put the ball down. But yeah. if it's a star, you know, you try and keep it under contain because, you know, if they get downhill, things can get pretty hairy pretty quick against the, the rotation. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if, if Davis Bertans has to take a dribble when he catches the ball, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Davis Bertans putting the ball down is like uh, very, very good. But, okay, uh, we'll talk big men. And first thing I'll ask you just so we know, Siakam and OG, as opposed to last year's playoffs, I would say Siakam is playing as the nominal center far more often than a lot of people might have thought in those front court OG Siakam minutes. What do you think? 
yeah, I, I would say, I would say those, those lineups. Well, are you talking about like small lineups or bigger lineups or, or both? The, the small lineups. It's just because okay. I want to talk about uh, how they're playing their cent- like Baines, Boucher, Siakam for yeah. center. So I, I almost feel like when they go to that small ball, like center duties kind of, they really fall on all the forwards, whoever they happen to be. Um, because like OG and Siakam both do do quite a lot of rim protecting in those lineups. And even when they're not in those lineups, they still wind up by the rim trying to wall it off quite, quite a lot. Um, as for whether like OG or Siakam is, is more the nominal center. I would say, I would say I, I do see Siakam by the rim a lot. Um, but, but I sort of feel like those responsibilities just have to go to the whole back line. Even if Kyle winds up under the basket sometimes, like he still, he still needs to be that rim protector and, and he's not, you know, it's not the same thing as having Rudy Gobert under there, but also like you can, you can pos- do a lot positionally and just jumping with verticality or taking charges or, or whatever you do under the basket. Um, there are, there are other ways to make an impact. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I see it shaking out when they go small. It's just everybody has to take care of that because, uh, you, you don't have that, you know, Rudy Gobert, or Clint Capella, who's just like patrolling the paint and, and dominating it. I suppose. Yeah. That's, that's probably the best way to put it is you don't have to, parse out who is playing what because they are playing a more aggressive scheme that puts players in a lot of different places. It's not like, you know, last night Pacers versus Grizzlies, you have Jonas eating on the glass like a big man would, and then you have him playing drop defense like a big man would. I think it's a bit different. But to talk about how they're playing that big man position defensively this year, what are the differences in scheme that you see between Baines, Boucher, and that platoon of the Siakam and OG front court because Baines can trap on occasion, he can hedge on occasion, and he can drop. And Boucher can do all those things. But what do you see being marched out most often? Hmm. I yeah, Baines. Baines is usually a dropper. He he does surprise me with some traps sometimes where he he gets his feet moving and gets his hands really active. Um, but for the most part, I I find him being a little bit more conservative inside the three point line, uh, unless it's, you know, sometimes we'll have to step up against a guy who can really shoot coming off a screen, a, a pull up three. But, uh, yeah. So, so when he's on the floor, I feel like one of the mistakes that I see a lot is him getting he's so when, when you're sort of in drop coverage, you, you are basically in a game where you have to kind of play the middle point between the guy you're defending and the guy who's coming off the screen and make sure that the pass doesn't get made, but the guy doesn't get all the way to the rim. And I feel like a lot of the time he won't give up the pass, but he won't really stop the ball either. And he'll just kind of wind up inside the charge circle while the guy with the ball does a layup. Uh, and, and so that is something that I find frustrating sometimes. Um, and then with when Boucher is on the floor, I think there's a little bit more uh, willingness to switch, probably, um, which, which has its pluses and its minuses. Um, and and I, I sort of feel like I'm, I'm of two minds with Chris Boucher because when he's locked in and he's focused and he's disciplined, 
I think it is a different ball game than when he is just kind of having one of his games where he's flying all over the place. Um, I think when he plays with discipline, he, he really affects a lot of shots and, and uh, can be an intimidating presence. Uh, but when he's biting on pump fakes, it, it, it very quickly starts leading to free throws and, and, uh, and then that just leads to super efficient scoring and, and, uh, and it becomes a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think Baines and Boucher have the opposite problem. I think sometimes Boucher can be overzealous in the pick and roll towards the ball handler. And then that backside can just completely collapse as far as, you know, a guy in a dunker spot or a guy rim running. And Baines, yeah, you can see him scoot his butt like almost back to the stanchion sometimes. And you're just like, what the hell are you doing, man? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it blows my mind a little bit. As far as... uh Boucher, it is that ability to recover. He's, he's obviously very agile at his size, and a misstep here can be recovered by him a lot easier than usual. I guess to focus in on Boucher a little bit more, since you know this season, we'll see if the Raptors make the play and we'll see what the direction is for the rest of the year, but it would seem that Baines' contract for next year is not happening. But Boucher... It seems like the the team should be very happy with what he's providing at his contract, and that'll be guaranteed, and he'll be on the team next year. What have you made about his steps defensively from last year to this one? I think, I think more often this season, I find him playing discipline than compared to previous years. Um, I, I think previous years he was reminded me a little bit more of Pascal and his like hustle player years <laughs> where it's just like, he's, he's just out there. He is impacting things possibly in a way that just generates chaos, but it, it still is good sometimes. Uh, whereas this season, I think he has been, there's, there are more times that I feel like he's really a positive contributor. Um, I, I think his, this is not defense, but his shooting, I didn't really expect him to, stay at this level this deep into the season. Um, and then in, in terms of defense, what I've seen from him that, that makes me excited is, is yeah, is when he plays with discipline, like be, just because of his size, like you mentioned, the big strides allow you to cover a lot of ground. And then the length really allows you to bother shots. And I think ways that surprise opponents sometimes um, and it's not too often that you do that to an NBA player where they just like don't really think a guy can get it and then they make that that athletic play. Um, but then the the so so with Chris Boucher, it is all sort of decision making stuff like do I jump out at this three pointer or should I just run out, get a hand up so that I can like crash the boards or box out or whatever um, and and because he has such a, a, a u, such unique physical tools, he has sort of a different decision making process than any other player. Like I don't think, I don't think he should follow the same rules for for closing out that Pascal follows or or whoever. Because a he can't change direction quite as well, and b he's deal, he's working with a lot more length uh, on his uh, on his jumps and his his reach and stuff like that too. So, uh, so, and, and then when he plays with, with discipline, then, then it just is a game changer and, and he, he can sort of patrol the paint, I think sometimes in a way that some of these other seven foot centers do 
but I, I think the Raptors defense often doesn't put him into that role because of the, the dynamic nature of it. Um, and that's, that's maybe something I would think about testing out down the stretch of the season. Like what happens, what happens if we just put Boucher and drop coverage and, and don't have him flying all over the court and, and just kind of see if he can control the paint a little bit. That'd be interesting. I think, yeah, he, as you say, his hierarchy of decision-making has expanded because of his tool set and is, you know, by proxy of that significantly more complex. And that's kind of what's happened to Pascal Siakam offensively is Pascal has so many more things in his bag because of what he's developed that he has to mix and match those things properly. And Boucher, because of his immense, you know, gifts, he can do things that other people just cannot. So he has to factor in like, do I do the Superman play here? And then oftentimes you look at him, try and do the Superman play. He'll leave a wide open offensive rebound or the dunker spot will be wide open for somebody and stuff like that. And so learning to, I guess, be in control of those extra gifts is something, but it is, um, it's interesting because, and this is maybe the most important question I'll ask you today is the center position, the Raptors, I don't think anybody would argue with you if you went up and said, I think Pascal Siakam is borderline all NBA defender. And you say the same thing for OG and Fred, all three of them, you can make that, you can make that case. And I don't think anybody would be upset at you. How does a defense that has three all NBA level defenders and a Kyle Lowry in it, and mind you, they've been missing some guys and they've missed some games, but how does that unit lose so much of its defensive bite? And what do you think that says about the center position or backline communicator position in the NBA? Yeah, it's, it's something that I didn't really expect to see this season quite as much because, like, as you mentioned, like, OG Siakam Van Vliet, that's like three of the, I don't know what number we want to put on it, but say top 30, top 50, whatever defenders, like, they're all really good. <laughs> uh, so... So to have a defense with all three of those guys and have it be like kind of mediocre is what has been surprising to me. Um, and, and I think it does say a lot about how important the center position is. I think it says a little bit about, I think Lowry has lost a step this season, which, you know, he was operating from a very high level before. Um, so, I mean, it's okay. Uh, he's still he's still a very positive player, um, but yeah, I think it means the the center position is important. And I also I also wonder if part of it is the center position is very important in this particular scheme as well. Like I, I do think I think you could scheme away a bit of the pain right now by just going more conservative. Um, but I think Nurse is kind of sticking to his defensive principles that helped the Raptors win the championship uh, with just not the same personnel. And, and the Raptors scheme, because of the dynamic nature of it, it just really, it asks a lot from everybody on. And if you, if you, it's the sort of scheme where if you make a mistake, it blows up the defense uh, in in a pretty big way. It's not just, oh well, you know that Rudy Gobert is back there at the rim. It's like no, like uh, guys are moving in ten different directions, and now there's like a layup. <laughs> uh, I so, sorry, go so ahead. So that that 
just that sort of conservative nature that some defenses have the Raptors don't have. And so, so because it is higher risk, it just, yeah, it just detonates sometimes. I've, I refer to Pascal in particular as like a problem solver in this scheme because of his ability to cover ground. And I think this scheme really accentuates his abilities when it's going and it's working really well, I think. And especially Fred too, just with the the help that it commands of him, but OG in a conservative scheme, I would really be interested to see how impressive he could be. And I think, yeah, if you, if you ask guys like Siakam and OG and Fred, like guard your man, try and keep that containment. And, you know, if you can get lucky and align one of Fred, Pascal, and OG on the same side of the floor as Lowry defensively, if he's getting blown by, the help is a little bit better than you might think, and it doesn't put as much pressure on that center position. It's really interesting, and I I do think I agree with you, is that the scheme probably calls for more of it than you would think. We talked about the cat-and-mouse game of the two-on-one situation in pick-and-roll, and you think about like how much of that was buoyed by Marcus Saul and his ability to swivel hips and keep his footwork clean because if the ball's going to go over active your... hands like stunting mm-hmm. towards guys stuff like that too like yeah he really he really did a lot that you you can appreciate watching yeah like you get him in that two-on-one situation and if there's a guy cutting baseline from the strong side he'll have a hand there to take that away if you try and throw a lob pass even at his advanced age, he'll swivel his hips, his efficiency of movement, and he'll get there and tap the ball away. And he'll make you feel that contest if you're just going up for that, you know, let's say nine foot to 12 foot floater or something like that. And he was underrated last year. And uh, I know you, you were championing that. I was also, but you know, I don't know as much. So it was a little bit less meaningful, but it's, he was such a big deal for that defense. Yeah. He really is like a, and and I, I think Lowry has a lot of this too, where they're just sort of a genius in in the way that they have spatial awareness of like what's going on with them, where they are on the court, and and sort of anticipating the next play. I, I think that's two areas where Gasol and Lowry are just like brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll move to something that's you know, a lot of people are very high on Gary Trent Jr. Rightfully so. He's had some extremely high-octane offensive games recently, the 44 points on 17 of 19 shooting, which is stupid, really. That's dumb that you can do that in the world. I, I think that's I cannot silly. do that in practice. Like, yeah. No. <laughs> even, even in the mic and drill, you go 16 for 20, you're like, okay, right on. Yeah. Um, but Gary Trent, so there's – he has a polarizing defensive – reputation i would say because mm, yeah he had he had very very good press in the bubble and the bubble completely the bubble transcends man the bubble performances they they are very far reaching but gary trent jr if you look at defensive impact and stuff like that and you watch the game uh jacob mack referred to his help defense as kind of toothless you can see that he doesn't fare that well in like the superstar matchups and like isolation defense and stuff like that. But he works hard. He clearly wants to be a good defender. The willingness is there. What have you made of him in the Raptors scheme so far? Yeah, it's, it's hard to gauge because like you mentioned, there's not a lot of practice time. 
the Raptors run a complex and I think different than most teams uh, scheme. Uh, so it's, it's hard to be too hard on, on anybody like coming into that system mid season, especially. Um, but there, there are definitely some room. There's definitely some room for growth. One of the things I think he could get better at is uh, dealing with screens at the point of attack. I've seen him die on a, on a few screens and, and I mean, we're lucky we're used to watching like Fred VanVleet chase guys over screens. So that's a hard thing to live up to. But if you watch the way Van Vliet in particular, the way he gets his inside foot and his inside shoulder up and over the screen, uh, whereas Gary Trent Jr. a lot of times will just kind of run into the screen that's beside him. Uh, there's not quite as much like anticipation and, and work in advance to get over it. Um, and that's a big thing in the Raptors scheme is, is chasing guys over screens, sometimes even when they're quite far from the basket and not a real, not a real threat, just because, I don't know, the, Rap- the Raptors just like to do that. Like, I, 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 you know, chasing Ish Smith over a screen 30 feet from the basket sometimes, it's like, we're getting into rotation this play. <laughs> it, it doesn't look great. But um, uh, I think that's one area where he could improve a little bit. and then. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he, he just he looks okay to me. Like I, I don't think he looks really great defensively. I don't think he looks really terrible defensively, and I don't think that's necessarily how it's destined to be forever either. Like I think, I think he has some learning to do in terms of like skills. Like there are a lot of defensive skills and and a lot of like defensive decision making that needs to happen as he's 22 years old and he's just not quite there yet with some of it and uh but but he has i like his uh his physical strength he's he's got some explosiveness to him and and yeah it seems like he really is a like a competitor (laughs) which is like you know i feel like i'm an announcer at a game just like saying empty words but he really competes on the floor uh and and that is like 50% of being a good defender. It's uh, I foresee him being somebody who gets a lot of tie-ups in the future. That's just like a small skill I think you'll have for some, for whatever reason, he looks okay. like a guy who's going to get a lot of tie-ups into uh, in the future. But yeah, I think this is something that I wrote about in my big Gary Trent piece and something I talk about on basically every reaction podcast is, eh, what, what are you supposed to say about Gary Trent's defense? Because he's not like all NBA level where he comes into a scheme and immediately it smacks you in the face. It's apparent. And he'll continue to transcend scheme because he's that talented. You need to see him in the proper context, especially in a complex defense. You need probably a training camp and a retooled roster. And then you start evaluating Kem Birch and Gary Trent Jr. But in this season where the Raptors are having some weird Frankenstein zombified season of this team, I think it's very tough to, to look at guys, but yeah, his footwork around screens, like Fred, that, that two action, like up and over, he he doesn't really have that. He's like taking these long, he's getting pushed like too far outside and taking these long routes or he's, as you say, just kind of dying on the screen. So that's, that's good insight there. Um, How to watch defense. Brad, I've already learned like a ton of stuff in this podcast and I learned so much more when I watch your videos. How do you watch defense to pick up on things? Like, what are you looking for? Are you watching on ball? 
Are you watching screen actions off ball, like the Ish Smith 30 feet away, pin down? What's, uh, what are you looking for particularly? Uh, a lot of times, well, if you really, really want to watch a possession, a great way to watch it is if you have league pass and you can, or, or even I guess if you have TiVo or whatever, a digital recording, uh, TV recording service, to be able to replay things and just go back like 10 seconds and sort of watch the play over again. Because if you watch different guys throughout a possession, you, you can really learn something. But in real time, uh, a lot of the most important stuff happens off ball. And, and I find you can sort of follow what's happening on ball kind of in the periphery of your vision. Like you'll always see the ball because there's big time action associated with it. Um, so if you kind of watch, watch off ball, watch on the weak side, watch what's materializing under the basket, um, and, and maybe focus on a, a particular player, like just, uh, especially if there's a, a big matchup, like watch, so watch how they defended Julius Randall in particular, like when he catches the ball, uh, or I, you know, I'm going to use a different guard or I'm going to use a guard, like a, th- a three point shooting guard. Like when they play the warriors, watch how they guard Curry. Watch how, like, Fred VanVleet stays tied to him. Then when he comes off a screen, watch how the big will, like, switch on to Curry to give VanVleet time to get around the screen and then switch back on to him. Like, like really sort of key in on non-ball parts of the play and, uh, and see sort of over a series of possessions how the Raptors handle actions because that's when you sort of start to see uh, what their defensive ethos is, and you sort of see them, you see the way they really load up to superstars and uh, and maybe ignore guys who they're fine with shooting, you know, 10 threes or whatever. That was one of the, as far as like watching off-ball stuff, I think the 2019 finals, where you look at the opposite side of the floor, the weak side, and there's four guys entrenched in like a split action, the two guys involved in it and the two guys defending it, watching Van Vliet and whoever was partnered with him maneuver through that stuff, however many feet off ball. It was so exciting because there's this real sense of like, if this goes wrong, Clay Thompson has a layup at the bucket or he's popping out to the corner or Curry's coming over top for a handoff or a, a, like a, a catch and shoot and stuff like that. There's, there's real stakes to it. And so they guarded that with real, real, uh, there's a term for extolling a lot of energy and we'll just input that here. Yeah, the um, the that that series in particular really showed it because also the Raptors wanted to turn Draymond into a shooter, so they ignored him completely on defense until he started trying to drive to the basket, um, and and so yeah, you you really saw their their scheme materializing, and and even like a similar thing like in the in the Bucks series. Uh, if you if you watch the way they construct that wall over and over by helping off of Eric Bledsoe in particular, uh, it's absolutely huge. And in the Sixer series from the championship run, they forced Tobias Harris to shoot like eight threes a game when he really didn't want to. Um, and and you know like Embiid averaged seventeen points in that series on like thirty five percent shooting. Like like there's there's so much beautiful schematic stuff going on uh so it, it really was uh a memorable run from that perspective yeah and good tobias, for watching defense yeah tobias 
Yeah, I feel bad for him because the quirks and rhythms of his game, the Raptors just took it and like shook it like a, a small child being like ridiculed or something like that. It was it was tough to watch. He was not, as you say, he was not ready for eight threes a game. He was not ready to be put in those positions. Neither was Bledsoe. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, Harris has looked better this season, though. I, I was watching a bit of Sixers, and uh, I, I think his defense has gone up a step, too. Because I watched the game where they were playing uh, – I can't remember now. But he was guarding a, a, like a superstar perimeter player. And, and I was impressed with the way he was navigating screens and everything, especially for a guy his size. Like navigating screens isn't necessarily something that comes with the territory, but uh, he's made some nice steps up. That's uh... – I can second that, but only as uh, Evan Gualberto, who I do the Bouncing Around podcast with, he had a 76ers game as his game of the week last week, and he was talking about how Tobias Harris is impressing me defensively. And I, I, they, they have this horns action. They run offensively to get Harris loose, and they've, they've found a lot of ways to maximize him, I think, in that offense, which is that should pay off in the playoffs, especially if he can – if it calls for it from game to game, that 50-40-90 – as far as uh, efficiency, maybe that pays off big. So, yeah, we're talking about Tobias Harris maybe more than we expected. But uh, let's talk about two other wing players. OG, Pascal. If Pascal's a wing to you, if he's a big to you, doesn't matter. He is what he is. He's a, a black he's box. Everything. Yeah, he's everything. All-encompassing. Okay. OG and Pascal. What are the, uh, what's the minutia? What makes them work? When you look at OG's game... What makes you? What is he doing that a normal fan, a casual fan, wouldn't pick up, but could start noticing after you describe it here? If we're gonna talk OG minutia, some of my favorite OG minutia is he just has a weird rhythm that he plays with. Like even with the way he takes steps <laughs> at guys, like like on closeouts. Uh, you mentioned like a lot of guys will like sprint out choppy steps and then get ready to like stop the guy from penetrating. Whereas OG oftentimes will do like a couple big long steps, but then plant on a dime, do a 180 and like get back into the play and pressure from behind. And part of that is him having great length. And part of it is him. Yeah. He just, he just like kind of has weird, weird rhythm i don't i don't really know how else to describe it but like the timing on his swipes is like a half second earlier than what you would think um his his steps are a little bit weird he goes for for strange blocks like he'll he'll try to block it before the guy leaves the ground instead of trying to like meet him at the summit he'll just try to like it it's but it's not a strip like you'll see fred van vliet get it's like the guy's on the way up and he just kind of tips it up high into the air or something like that. Um, so that, uh, in terms of OG, that's, that's one really big thing. And, and, and something else, and, and I don't know a ton about this, but something that I've heard is, is when you're playing on the ball defense, you, you know how we were sort of taught in your defensive stance, you have your feet like a little bit more than shoulder width apart. You get your butt down, you sort of, in a squat a little bit and and i've heard more coaches talking about uh, a newer way to do it is bending at the or hinging at the hips more so than the knees 
And part of what that does is it gets, if you're on the ball, it gets your shoulders farther forward so that you can get an extra couple inches with your reach to maybe bother dribble. And, and really, the, a lot of times when you get beat off the dribble, you're not sliding with that lateral movement. What a lot of the elite defenders will do is they'll completely pivot their hips so that they're facing in the direction that they want to go and they are now just sprinting in that direction to try to recover. And, uh, and that's something OG does uh, a lot in particular is, is the way he sort of angles his hips can, can be really effective. That's, you, you, you painted a beautiful picture because I can see that play in my mind. I know exactly that action that you're describing when it comes to the, OG does hinge. He's not like low down, you know, slapping the ground, that type of defender. He's, he's hinging and it's, you know, he's leaning over the defender at times, especially when you looked at how he guarded Kemba last year in the playoffs too, is, mm-hmm. and, and still was able to kind of, to keep up with him. And it is that, that quick swivel of the hips and sprinting. I think I've talked to PD Webb. I think he talked about this too. And yeah, it's a, that's, that's great insight. I'm, I'm very happy with that answer. Pascal Siakam. I know that I'm asking a lot of you. This is not really fair. These are not well-thought-out questions. They're just me pointing at you and saying, teach, teach. But uh, Pascal Siakam, if uh, we're going to do the minutia, what, what makes him special defensively? What makes Pascal Siakam special defensively? A big part of it for him is, is he, he is a great athlete, like he, in, in the truest sense of the word. Like He is explosive. He's fast. He can jump. Um, I, I think over the years he's gotten more, uh, he, he thinks the game better than, than he used to in terms of anticipation and stuff like that. Um, but for me, the, the biggest thing for Siakam is he just, his, his switchability is pretty unmatched. Um, like really the only type of guy that he can't take is like an Embiid, you know, big bruiser type of guy but if he has to switch out to somebody on the perimeter that's that's good um and and he has like great activity level with his hands just kind of all the all the intangibles and and a lot of the tangibles that you want from a guy his size are what he has like he can move his feet like a guard he has active hands he he's competes uh defensively um he can jump reasonably well Um, like he just, he just kind of has all the tools and, and he uses them all the time. (laughs) So that, I mean, that makes you a pretty good defender. He hangs in the paint better than I would have expected for his career. There's, um, like he can, he can contest at the rim better than I might've expected without it being like this huge gather, two steps, swinging arms coming up to like pin a ball against the glass, just these kind of bouncing on his toes, getting ready to contest a shot straight up. He's much better at that than I thought he would be. And yeah, as you point out, being able to switch, like it comes to mind. I went to a game, you know, I guess two years now at this point where they used, when it was the Russell Westbrook and Paul George rendition of the Thunder, Pascal took Westbrook in the second half. That was his matchup. When they played the Wizards, he was on John Wall. And you just look at like this, you know, locker of guys he's guarded in the past and last year against Tatum if he switched out onto him he could hang with Jason Tatum in isolation for a whole possession he could do it for three possessions in a row if they wanted to switch above the break and that's impressive man that is that is a hell of a defender 
Yeah, and and he's he's one of those guys like I was talking about with Danny Green, where the extra length just takes some some lanes away. Where if you had a guy who's a little bit smaller, it's not possible. Um, but but he doesn't give up any of the mobility that comes sometimes with playing a, a bigger guy. So that's uh, that's absolutely huge, especially in the Raptors system because it is so dynamic and there is so much rotation having a guy who can really get around the court, I think has extra value to the Raptors in particular. Okay. And since we haven't talked about Fred that much, I mean, in passing, as we're describing other actions, if we don't get to Fred on this question, we'll, we'll talk about him separately. But if there was one player to make an all NBA defense team from this Raptors squad, who would it be for you? Hmm. In a vacuum, not like not thinking about games played. Ah, it's OG or Fred. I think Siakam is out this season. I think uh, I think he's been good, but just not quite as good as the other two. Um, uh, defensively, mm. I think I probably I probably would give it to OG. Probably. Maybe I, think, I don't know. This I, I'm very torn. <laughs> so 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 Van Vliet, like one of the things that makes him like he's he's just an insane defender. So he he's so good at dealing with screens. Uh, it, it it's pretty unbelievable the way he's able to navigate them, get around them, like minimize the contact, get back into the play. He he doesn't uh, get caught behind guys a lot you know how uh, guys will come off they'll snake the screen and sort of put you in jail on, on your butt but uh he's good at avoiding that kind of getting around the guy and getting back into the play and then he just has some of the best hands in the league uh one of my favorite youtube videos i made recently was all about how fred van vliet has like the best hands in the league being strips on unsuspecting bigs he's great at uh hassling ball handlers like he just kind of does it all with tremendous like strength and focus and effort um, and, and quickness as well. Uh, but I feel like there probably is some limitation just on the fact of, of being so small. Like there's, there's only so much there, there just is a ceiling to, to how much you can do defensively as a five foot 11 guy. And, uh, and, and so for that reason, I probably would, put OG over him uh, even if I think probably what Van Vliet has done this season is a little bit more impressive. Yeah. I think that's the thing about wing players is that they transcend position consistently. Like what is a wing player really? It's just a guard and a big, there's a guard, there's guard stuff and there's big man stuff and wings defensively and offensively, they dip their feet into both worlds and some do it incredibly well. The platonic ideal is the guy who plays like a guard offensively and can guard every possession, you know, on uh, on defense. And OG, if you look at his, like the defensive metrics from last year's playoffs, where among wings, he's like 99th percentile in block percentage because he's asked to play, you know, small ball and he's able to, you know, bring that off what would be the offbeat um, help side defense that is incredibly effective and stuff like that. So just what he offers the scheme as far as recovering and uh, problem solving at the back end, I think maybe gets him to uh, 
the highest the highest value as far as in in a vacuum on the roster but fred's dependability at the point of attack is is something else yeah and 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 i mean fred's off ball deep i didn't even mention his off ball defense but his off ball defense is huge too the way he can kind of lock and trail guys or or uh just navigating off screen around screens again um his his switchability even against much larger players uh is is like totally fine if if you have to switch him on to chris middleton for a possession or something like that's that's no problem at all and and middleton will probably get the ball stolen to be honest uh but uh yeah he 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 just gives you a lot all over the court Lowry and Van Vliet continuously impress me with their ability to take away guys' legs. It's like yeah. your right thigh, the, the leg you want to jab step with, suddenly you feel immobilized because they're just there. They're like, drive it left. I'm going to beat you this spot. You're going to shoot over me, but my elbow is going to hit your knee on the way up. You're going to feel like everything's taken out of you. But like, go ahead, dude, if you think this is the isolation you want. And they're both so good at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great having both of them in the backcourt. Yeah. Okay. Any other defensive tidbits we should know about before we get out of here? Any other defensive tidbits? I like Utah's defense. I don't have a ton to say about it, but I just like, there are multiple times each game where I'm like, oh, that was nice. Um, so he's, he's somebody that I'm hoping the Raptors keep around for development purposes and, and again, I think he gives you a little bit of extra size. That's nice. And you know, if he can hit some corner threes, he's he, he'll be viable offensively. Um, so that's that's one guy. Stanley, I'm out on the Stanley experiment. Uh, the it's uh, there's a lot of decision making stuff for me with him that I find frustrating. Uh, a lot some some bad fouls and and bad help defense and stuff like that uh that i'm not a super big fan of and then bad stuff offensively too like just tunnel vision or whatever um so that's that's not one that i'm particularly hopeful about um and and that's something in general that the raptors i would love to see them clean up is just the the silly perimeter fouls especially when you're in the bonus and it's like you know i'm 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 fouling this guy who's not even trying to attack the basket. He's just like doing a swing pass and surveying the floor and you just reach in, you take a swipe and you foul them. And, and now they're getting the most efficient play on the court <laughs> uh, other than a dunk basically. Um, so that, uh, that can be frustrating. And, and that's not just Stanley. That's, that's other guys too. But uh, Stanley is often uh, the, the uh, target of my ire for that reason. I, uh, I've thought this whole season that Yuta was more impressive than Stanley. And I thought Stanley has like, you know, a bit of an inflated defensive reputation as well. And, you know, it's maybe it's because of the, the pedigree, like seventh or eighth overall draft. And, you know, when he said he was in LeBron's head, like in the playoff series with the Pistons, like there's so much reputation that just isn't related to like what you're actually doing, especially with defense. There's a, it's really interesting, but Yuda, I agree with you 100%. He continues to impress, and there's I, I see that he's you know an above-average NBA defender. Like, unequivocally, that's 100% yeah. there. And there's room for growth offensively that I could see him hitting, especially since he has solid mechanics on his jumper the last few games. Even you can see 
that's something that's been coming along, a quicker trigger. Bembry, I think, cycles quite well in the Raptors' defense. I think he has the, the, the proclivity to do it. He seems like he fits, although he also struggles with decision-making sometimes too. So it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and Bembry, I'm a little bit more dubious about his offensive viability than I am for Utah. Even though Bembry gives you some nice ball handling stuff, he is essentially a non-shooter, I feel like, which when you've got Siakam struggling the way he has this season, like my, my dream was Siakam becomes like a 37% three-point shooter, and now the non-shooter on the floor can be somebody else. But right now, the non-shooter on the floor is Siakam. <laughs> and, and so you put another non-shooter on the floor, and now it becomes too easy to clog the paint. And especially if you put Baines on the floor too, it, it just it gets tough. So, so I sort of feel like the, one of the way the Raptors will become very, very good is um, uh, building their roster uh, more around Siakam's limitations, um, which is something I think they failed to do a little bit this season, partly because they just kind of ran out of options. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think they wanted Baines to ideally be the starting center, and I think they wanted him to be better than this, but he's not, and, and so that's just that's kind of life. Um, but, but I think moving forward, keeping mostly shooters on the floor with Siakam will, will be probably very important that's that's a great point i think is you have to build around siakam because he's your max guy and he has shown the playmaking now i don't think this is what anybody expected but it looks like the playmaking might be his most scalable his most scalable skill it looks like he might become one of the best playmaking bigs in the nba over like a five-year span like that really could be something that he he does now the shot making, I think, we're, we're maybe seeing like the limits of it because sometimes he can look so beyond his depth when he's trying to create off the dribble. And last year he went on that huge run and it's like, okay, this is fantastic. But you see that, yeah, maybe he is a little bit out of his depth at times. And they've been working on his jumper. I think Nick Nurse said like, we're waiting 18 months. He started off hot, but maybe that comes back around if he does get to that 36, 37. I mean, hey you're in the money. But I do like that point you make. Building around his playmaking would be, I think, really smart thing to do. So one of the reasons, or one of the things that the, the Raptors have suffered from this season, and one of the reasons Siakam hasn't been quite as effective as we hoped, I think, is, is that lack of shooting that's around him to open up the floor to help him, A, get driving lanes, uh, but B, like, if the double team comes he his passing has gotten so much better if he can kick it out and everybody he passes to can shoot the three or everybody who's two passes away can shoot the three uh i think that's going to be really huge and 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 part of the reasons he's struggling is is yeah because the defense is loading up to him so much because there isn't that shooting there um and and that has that has helped his playmaking tremendously but if if the Raptors put real shooting on the floor and that double team can't come, I think Pascal has shown this season that he still has the moves and the skills to absolutely burn guys one-on-one. It just isn't necessarily uh, with his three-point shot. 
what comes to mind is his, I think everybody can see it if they just think about it, is he picks up the dribble, like he's driving, let's say, like the 45, and he picks up his dribble because the guy's pinching in, and he has that pass over the top of the pinching in defender out to the corner. You see him make it like seven times a game, and you might say like, oh, it's an open corner three, but it really depends on who's shooting, and it's only been good basically because of you know Kyle not playing that much. It's only been good if he's been passing to like Fred or OG. That's a really limited offensive arsenal to be working with. And he would probably much prefer it if he wasn't getting pinched in on. Like that would make his yeah. life a yeah, lot exactly. easier. That, that opens it up for your handle and, and for you to get all the way to the rim. Uh, and, and yeah, so, so hopefully, you know, with Gary Trent Jr. coming, that's, that's a, a long-term piece that I, I'm very hopeful about in terms of putting more shooting on the floor around him. Uh, seems like Flynn, I don't think there's anything wrong with a shot. He, sh- he should, uh, continue developing. Um, so, and then, you know, OG and Fred, the, the key is going to be getting that other forward who, who like what, what I would love is next season, assuming Kyle's not back. I don't think he will be, uh, the starting lineup of Van Vliet, Trent at the two OG Siakam and another guy who's either like a straight up center or another guy who's like OG and Siakam sized and, and really have a a little bit more size on the floor. And ideally all four guys besides Siakam can shoot the three. So I think the, what, what would be the, the best case scenario for the similar size guy to OG and Siakam is like, John Collins doesn't get matched from the Hawks and the Raptors throw an offer sheet. And then the real center, I think, is probably a guy like Rashawn Holmes. Either case, I'm over the moon because I like both those guys a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that could be good. Uh, Sean Woodley floated out uh, Miles Turner to me if mm-hmm. they could target him with uh, draft picks. Um, that would be a uh, trade. That would be great. And, and I also, I'm an, interested in the services of Daniel Tice potentially as just a, a mobile big uh, who, can, who can give them a bit more rim protection with his uh, shot-blocking ability. I like Tice a lot, and I can't believe the Celtics traded him for that little. That The Raptors... That was, yeah, I think that was just a pure cap move, which mm-hmm. it, it's always tough. Like, you're basically giving up on the season, <laughs> pretty much. Like I, I think that Tatum will hurt in a playoff Brown? series. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, why wouldn't you want Daniel Tice? Unless he was being like an absolute fiend in the locker room and saying like, there's no way you start Time Lord over me. I'll create hell. <laughs> but it's, I don't really see that either. But yeah, it was a no. weird move considering their roster and how talented they are to be giving yeah. up on guys. I think it was, I think it was basically like, we know intrinsically that Robert Williams is the future here or, or we're praying to God that he is. And and so we're not going to pay Daniel Tice, and so we just want to get something for him, which which to me is is also an admission. Like, yeah, we we know we're not going to win it this season. Which and to be fair, I think that is a an accurate evaluation of their season. So, um, all right, Brad, is there anything else you'd like to address before we get out of here? Uh I think I think I'm good. I think I've talked myself out <laughs> defense-wise. So as far as uh, if you've ever listened to the podcast before, you know it's about that time. The end of the pod is a, a showcase for everyone to plug, plug, plug away. 
could be a YouTube channel. Some people plug a book they're reading. Could be Gloomhaven, could be whatever, right? So uh, the floor is yours. All right. So uh, check me out on Twitter at uh, two underscore much underscore hoops. I post a lot of Raptors related content when I'm not getting mad at the provincial government. Uh, and uh, check me out at youtube.com slash too much hoops. Uh, I have breakdowns, all defense breakdowns of every win from the Raptors championship run. I really recommend checking those out there. It's a great playlist. Um, great way to kill some time and, and relive the, uh, the greatness of the championship team. Um, and then I also do other breakdowns. Like I mentioned, I, I recently did one of, uh, breaking down why Fred Van Vliet is so great at getting steals and deflections. Um, so yeah, if you check out those, it, it would mean a lot to me. Listener. I cannot recommend them highly enough. I've learned a lot from Brad's videos. And if you thought that we were getting into the minutia, into the weeds in this podcast, and you thought, wow, I'd like to learn even more. I promise you the videos are much more comprehensive and the visual aids help a great deal. It's, it's great stuff. And yeah, Brad, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, so the YouTube will be linked and so will the Twitter. You can just go to Raptors Republic, click on this article and it'll, you just click on his name. It'll take you wherever you need to go. So uh, keep that in mind if you're listening to the podcast and want to go check him out. So listener, thanks for tuning in. Brad, thanks for coming on. But whether you got into it in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-800-941-2358 to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma or relapse, for young adults, for adults 50 plus, for LGBTQ patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas, a confidential program for first responders and military, and a faith-based program. Recovery Centers of America accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-800-941-2358. 800-941-2358.